Hey, welcome back. Uh, I want to start off by thanking every one of you for tuning into today's podcast. So I don't want to entirely step away from a discussion on silver and gold today, uh, because certainly what I'll be talking about today is is silver and gold is, is I think, going to be key to what I'm talking about as it applies to you and I. However, we're not going to make today's discussion all about silver and gold. Um, you know, it's been a bit since I've made my last podcast, and, and in that time, you know, plenty has happened in the market, and yet the price action has been mostly sideways. And I'm not overly discouraged about that. Silver, I think, is still sitting at a pretty good spot, north of $27 an ounce. And, and I think the upside potential is still um, very attractive, especially when you look at uh, well, you know, some of the news the past couple of weeks in the market, whether it's the LBMA and their uh, dishonesty or or mistake, whatever you want to call it, in terms of their uh, the, the the you know them reporting basically how how large their their stock of silver was for I think it was the month of month of March, month of April, I forget. Uh, whether it's that or it's the continued, you know, high demand among silver buyers, especially here in the West, the United States and, and, and other Western countries. You know, there's a lot of positive to be seen, even with some of the recent pullback in just the last, you know, week or so in the commodity sector, whether that's lumber, uh, iron ore, uh, similar, you know, commodities. Silver hasn't seen that to the same extent. So that's really positive, certainly. There's a lot of positive to be found in that. But I, again, I want to take a step back from that. And I instead want to focus on the Fed, focus on the Fed, focus on inflation. Now, part of this, this is a, a recent, I want to start off with this, a recent interview. No, no, I'll say right off the bat, I didn't watch this entire video. This was a, a video, uh, an interview done um, with with by, by Greg Hunter from usawatchdog.com. Um, with the economist John Williams, founder of shadowstats.com. Now, shadowstats.com is a website that I have brought up numerous times in the past here on this podcast. Uh, essentially, shadowstats is, is what he calls um, his, his reporting of economic data. For example, the one that I used, I, I think I use the most consistently, is his, uh, his inflation data. Essentially, what he's done is, is, is he has his own inflation model, which is not something his, own, you know, he created his own to, to overstate inflation, but rather was the, the model, the methodology the U.S. government used back in, he has one that's based on, on the 1990 and 1980 methodology to calculate CPI. And basically what you see over time is a massive divergence between officially reported CPI numbers, which, you know, since the, the Great Recession have been under 5% at, at points, you know, close to like 2, 1%, you know, pretty low. Um, even recently, you know, you're only seeing that CPI number start to tick up. But, um, and I'm only, by tick up, I mean less, still less than 5% on a year over year basis. But his numbers obviously show a very different picture. A picture that might be more in line with what you and I have have faced on a daily basis for quite some time. That over time, especially in the 90s, you see a divergence and you see inflation start to tick up and actually be closer to like, you know, 8, 9, 10, at times 11%, even higher over the last, you know, roughly 10, 15, 20 years. A huge divergence. And then again, he's not using his own methodology, but rather the methodology from the 1980, 1990 numbers. Now, I mean, the important thing to understand here is that 
is there some justification to make an adjustment to the CPI model over time? Yes. But obviously the, the, the gripe that I and so many others have had with the CPI for a while now is that it's almost always skewed to understate inflation, right? To, to add in things like substitution for certain products, um, to, to always overstate just how much benefit people have gained from, let's say, an improvement in technology or increased features on things like electronics or, or vehicles. Um, and, and use that as a justification for why, hey, the price has gone up a ton, but the CPI shows almost no price inflation or deflation in some of those products. And hey, some of that deflation or, you know, a drop in cost that, that has existed too, because, you know, as a whole, we've gotten better at producing, let's say, you know, TVs, even to some extent computers. Those have gotten cheaper, especially the newer and much nicer ones. Sometimes that's justified, but as a whole, We've seen a much, much higher level of inflation. And that's what Shadow Stats has shown. Now, this interview that John Williams did, again with Greg Hunter, basically is, is predicting hyperinflation. Quote, I think we're eventually headed into a hyperinflationary economic collapse. It's not that we haven't been in an economic collapse already. We are coming back some now. The Fed has been creating money at a pace that has never been seen before. You're basically up 75% in money creation year over year. This is unprecedented. Normally, it might be up 1% or 2% year over year. The exploding money supply will, will lead to inflation. I'm not saying that we're going to get to 75% inflation yet, but you are going to get up to 4% or 5% range, and you are soon going to be seeing 10% range year over year. The Fed has lost control of inflation. Now, uh, you know, he continues to go on basically to say like, hey, by the way, 10% inflation, that's something I've been cataloging for a while now. Uh, that's going to be according to their official numbers, 4%, 5%, 10% year over year. You know, these are like 1970s type numbers, but those are going to be the official CPI numbers. The real number is going to be much, much higher on top of that, right? Because it's a more consistent methodology. Hyperinflation, you know, even 10% inflation, 15% inflation, that's a high number. And, and, and are we moving into that right now? You know, the, the big CPI print, the month over month 0.8% increase, which is a, uh, you know, a year over year basis is almost 10%. That was a big number. And we'll see where it goes month by month. Again, this is a government reported number and, and I don't anticipate it to be that high for the next few months. I think it's going to be lower, but as we go on, I do think that that CPI number, as he said here, is going to be sitting at like 4%, 5% when you look at it, not just year over year, but but when you start to average out those month after month after month increases in costs, that that they have lost control of inflation, as, as he says here. And, you know, I want to relate this back to actually a, a, a video podcast I put out. This is actually published February 25th, 2019. Uh, so, so uh, you know, over two years ago now, titled "We Will See the Dollar Devalued 50% in Five Years," uh, the Great Devaluation. That was that was the text on the the thumbnail, and I put that out. Basically, it wasn't necessarily in five years from now, as as I lay out in there. That that's not necessarily. I can't say exactly when that's going to start. If it's going to be you know in 2019, or if it was going to be in a year or two in the future that that five year period start. But that in in five years we would experience a 50% devaluation. And so that is similar to what John Williams is saying here, that maybe eventually we'll get to that hyperinflation. 
really high levels of inflation, much, much higher than 10, 15, 20%. Maybe we won't. But then I do think a devaluation is coming. I think a devaluation will be seen by many as, as necessary. In fact, uh, as he says here, that the Fed basically has a, a choice, inflation or implosion. Either they continue down their current path or allow everything to implode. And, and as I've said so many times here on this podcast, the Fed is, well, they're a creature of habit and they are always going to choose what is most politically expedient over the short term, even if it's not in the best interest of, of their, their mandate, of the dollar, of the economy. Even if it's not in the best interest of that, they're still going to choose what is most you know, politically expedient over the short term. Now, this, this relates back actually to another news item that's coming out just in the last day or two, uh, looping back to the Federal Reserve again. And this is their kind of the pickle that they find themselves in uh, in relation to their overnight reverse repo markets. Now, reverse repo, uh, this is this is something that was in the news, the repo markets and the reverse repo markets quite a bit back in 2019 pre-COVID and the reverse repo usage, which I'll get into here in a second, um, was also very high uh, at the beginning of kind of the coronavirus uh, crisis, you know, March, April of 2020. The reverse repo markets, essentially how, okay, so how the repo market would work is you have an entity, let's say in this case, let's take two entities, the Fed and the banks, big, large banks. And in a repo exchange, basically the, the bank would sell a, you know, asset to the Fed and then agree to purchase it back in the future at a, you know, slightly higher price. And it doesn't always have to be the bank and the Fed. It can be the bank and the bank, bank and, and some other, you know, financial entity. And so what this gives the bank then is some amount of, of cash liquidity in exchange for the, the bonds that they're offering up basically as collateral. They're going to purchase them at, back the next day at a incrementally, incrementally higher price, you know, very small price hike, but, but, you know, it's just one day. And if you average it out over a year, you know, the, the individual that is taking this, you know, treasury, this bond under their balance sheet, overnight on an overnight basis and then giving it back the next day, you know, average that out, they're going to make some amount of profit off it. So it's a market, right? Uh, the reverse repo market is the reverse of that. Essentially, in this case, the Fed is, uh, they're, 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 they're doing the opposite of that. Instead of buying, you know, these or, or whatever, these buying these bonds on an overnight basis, they are, giving these bonds in exchange for cash reserves that are on these banks balance sheet on an overnight basis. And essentially what this is indicating, and this is a large amount here, actually, one of the highest amounts it's ever been. This is a spike in overnight reverse repo rates. Those are have, you know, for a while we're, we're the norm on kind of like a quarter end basis, year end basis. Um, that's not what is going on right now in, in the middle to end of May or, or not year end or, or quarter end. Um, and yet reverse repo market, um, usage through the Fed is one of the highest it's been. In fact, on Friday was the fifth highest in history. 
again on a on a otherwise normal day, right? Um, on on Monday, um, they actually said that uh, that's the day I'm recording this. They said that the day that for Friday that uh, the total usage was uh, 394.9 billion dollars, right? So coming up on half a trillion dollars worth of reverse repo usage by these by these banks. And essentially what this is signifying, to finish my earlier thought, is that these banks are chock full of reserves as a result of the Fed policy. So the Fed, through their QE, yeah, people say this isn't money printing. What they're doing is they're buying these bonds from banks. And that's that's essentially what they're doing is they're buying these bonds from these banks and, and the cash that is then going to these banks in exchange for these treasury bonds, uh, in this case, treasury bonds, they are going to basically reserves. Well, when when banks suddenly start demanding a high amount in terms of these reverse repo market usage on, on an overnight basis, it's what, what what they're showing is basically that their reserves are too high, that they need these treasuries on their balance sheet for, for various purposes on an overnight basis because their reserves are too high. And what this signifies to, to you and I is essentially that the Fed, they are on a set course of QE at a, at a, at a you know, currently, um, $30 billion a week. And, and that is simply not sustainable. That the banking system is saying we have too much reserves. What you're doing right now is not working. And, and I would continue to expect that as QE continues, that the, the reverse repo market usage will continue to increase, signifying that that something's wrong in the financial system. Now, this doesn't mean like necessarily that banks are on the verge of collapsing because of this or something like that. It's signifying that what the Fed is doing, there's a limit to how much they can continue their current method of QE, essentially printing money, buying these bonds off the banks, uh, off of the banks, and, and adding that cash to their reserves. That there is a limited capacity for this. Now, the problem is is that the Fed cannot just reverse their policy overnight. They can't just stop QE. They could, but they won't because QE is hugely supportive to asset markets and to interest rate markets, which are you know, one and the same. But, but they're massively important to that. What would happen if one of the single biggest indicators or single biggest contributors to to asset price inflation in the last 10, 12, 13 years was suddenly turned off overnight. If QE suddenly dried up, you'd likely see a huge liquidity problem in the market. These QE is a huge contributor to liquidity. You know, something that many of my long-term listeners have heard many times in the past from me is that, you know, today's market, the stock market, Primarily, but, but other markets as well. They're, they're largely a product of a continuous increase in credit and liquidity. You pump more debt into the system and, and more liquidity into the system, all the while keeping rates low, which, you know, helps sustain that debt increase and sustain that liquidity increase. And you get asset price inflation. That's what QE has largely caused. That is not, has not caused as much inflation as some maybe would have expected in the real economy, but certainly asset price inflation has occurred. And if you suddenly turn off that spigot overnight, you you get a reversal. You get a massive probably crash in the market and a liquidity problem. And then you maybe have to start worrying about 
the solvency of banks. You have to worry about the uh, structure or the framework of the markets um, that it will be able to sustain such a shock. And so the Fed's not going to do that. Like I said, they can, but they won't. They've kind of backed themselves into a corner here. The market is expectant of you know a handful of different types of, of support from the Fed, namely QE and, and low interest rates. Those are kind of the main ones. And they can't reverse policy on that overnight. They can't suddenly stop supplying this liquidity to the system. All the while, and, and I promise you, this is looping back to what I said earlier about inflation and dollar devaluation. Like I said, QE in and of itself has proven not to be a huge cause of inflation, in my opinion, in consumer prices. Have we seen a lot? That has been underreported by the government. Yes, I'm not entirely convinced that's all the result of QE, though. I think that has contributed somewhat to it, but I think a lot more so QE has contributed to asset price inflation, namely the stock market, real estate, um, and 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 certainly debt markets, corporate debt, consumer debt, and and definitely government debt. Right? If you basically subsidize a market like like treasury bonds by, a, you know, never ending. Uh, um, um, stream of liquidity into the system buying these bonds, then obviously you're going to drive up prices and drive down rates. Okay. But one of the other problems here is that they could potentially start to slowly draw down the amount of QE they're providing to the system. Now, that's a problem. We talked about liquidity problems. We talked about, you know, the Fed has tried this in the past and it has proven very difficult. I think impossible to do without a, a, as John Williams said, an implosion. It it, it would take way too long. They tried it in the past. It took way too long. They didn't get very far before all of a sudden they had to reverse in that case because of of COVID. But I think it would have happened eventually anyways, a massive reversal, buying bonds again, driving down rates. The other problem that they have, though, is the U.S. government and its debt. U.S. government debt is, is a huge problem. And it's continuing to balloon out of control. Yes, to some extent, in recent months, talks of, of as much stimulus as maybe when Biden first took office, it's maybe not as extreme now. But even just the base uh, deficit, never mind a massive new stimulus bill or infrastructure bill, is, is still huge. You know, prior to COVID, it was topping a trillion. Um, I would expect at least two trillion now, especially when you add, you know, interest expense and you add um, just the fact that the economy is not doing nearly as well. Tax receipts are lower. A whole bunch of new spending programs, ongoing fiscal stimulus. Yeah, yeah it's a, uh, it's going to be higher, much, much higher, and that has to be monetized somehow. The f- because the market is not going to be able to accept that amount of debt without the Fed providing some amount of support for the market. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the Fed is the only buyer in the U.S. Treasury market. They haven't you know, nationalized the entire market yet. Um, foreign holders of U.S. debt, they continue to buy at times. Uh, consumers, or I shouldn't say consumers, but like individual investors, uh, both in the United States and, and abroad, they continue to, to buy bonds, whether it's part of their retirement or whatever, you know, maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, but people do. And, and banks certainly have a lot of, of bonds. Uh, but 
But without the Fed and without the Fed being able to support the markets in the way that they have in the past 10, 15 years, the, the treasury bond market is there's just not enough buyers. Rates would go up significantly uh, and and that would be a huge problem for the U.S. government because now they're sitting on, what, 27, 28, I don't have a number in front of me, trillion dollars worth of debt that could be at, you know, 3% interest rate, 4%, something like that, even higher, as opposed to what it's at right now. And all of a sudden, the interest expense is is getting pretty close to you know, the entire amount of money they're bringing into through the uh, through taxes. And obviously, you can see where that, that would, would get out of control pretty quickly. Because once people see that, they start to run for the exits uh, of, of the treasury market and rates continue to rise and prices continue to drop. And, and that's, a, that's a huge problem. Um, very possible... But the Fed, I think, realizes that their need, they, they see a need at least, to mo- continue to monetize that debt. And so this brings me to my big conclusion here is that these repo markets, reverse repo markets, um, they're signifying that the Fed and their current QE programs are not sustainable. And yet we know that that liquidity has to be provided to the system somehow or else we'll have an implosion. I think we're heading eventually straight towards direct monetization of debt. I mean, I, I shouldn't say for sure. I think it's, it's going to be one of two things. I think for sure, eventually, direct monetization of debt. That's eventually going to happen. The Federal Reserve is going to directly fund the U.S. government. There's not going to be the middleman of the banks and this whole reserve system. That's still going to be there, but there's going to be a whole nother route, and it's going to be through you know direct monetization of, of U.S. debt. There's not going to be a debt, right? The U.S. government's just going to get that money straight from the Fed, and that's inflationary, highly inflationary. Um, the other thing that's coming is the Fed is going to start monetizing other things to a greater extent. You know, they're continuing their mortgage-backed security purchases, their U.S. government debt purchases. And, you know, in the past, you know, there's corporate debt that's come up as well. But I think at some point we're going to move past that, and it's going to be, you know, ETFs, stocks, uh ETFs and stocks are going to be related to other assets as well. You know, I don't see the Fed going out and directly buying entire pieces of, of, let's say, commercial real estate. But ETFs, yeah, real estate, you know, residential real estate, ETFs, industrial, whatever, you know, types of real estate, that's happening. That's coming eventually. And so those are the two things to look for. That's obviously going to be hugely inflationary to to asset prices, um, but but I think also the U.S. dollar. And, and in terms of, of the, uh, in terms of the, the, the monetization of the U.S. deficit, which they've been doing for years, but direct monetization without the current, um, restraints of going through the banking system, hugely, hugely inflationary. As, as John Williams says, I mean, they've lost control. They've backed themselves into a corner here. And isn't hyperinflation coming? Maybe, maybe not. But as I said before, you know, a dollar devaluation of 50% in five years, we're only talking, and somebody can check my math here because I certainly could be wrong. We're only talking about 15% inflation year over year, 15% and then another 15% and another 15%. And you can see where that's going. And, and pretty quickly that devaluation, you know, it, it brings down the, the, the amount of, of how much, how much impact the debt has on the current system. But obviously the side effects of that are 
that are, are much, much worse. Namely, uh, you run the risk of full-blown hyperinflation. And, and, and second of all, mm-hmm. savers, uh, are, are punished. People that own those bonds, people that own cash, uh, and similar, similar assets, they're really punished. They're the real losers. Um, retirees, I'm sure would, would be punished unless they just, you know, help straight precious metals, real estate, stock market, something like that. Um, savers are punished and, and it's, uh, it's hugely damaging. But then, of course, you always run the risk then of hyperinflation. If you see 15% inflation one year, I guarantee you that what's going to be on a lot of people's minds is, well, what's next year going to be? What's next quarter going to be? Are we looking at 20%? And if we get there, what's, you know, we have a trend all of a sudden. We probably would have already had a trend by the time we got to 15%. It's coming. It's already here. Inflation is already here. Uh, is it transitory? No. I think we might see the CPI numbers cool off a bit um, in the coming months. But but it's here, and I think it's going to only continue to increase as the money supply and it, it continues to be inflated, and as you know, monetization of debt and, and stimulus continues to be to be poured onto this to this fire onto this blaze. As always, though, I'd like to thank every one of you um, for tuning into today's podcast. Let me know down below in the comment section. Uh, where you think this is heading. Are you are you a deflationist? I'd love to hear from you too, because I think precious metals and, and a kind of a deflationary outlook over the kind of short to medium term, I think that can, you know, still make sense, right? But let me know down below in the comment section. As always, I'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast and God bless.